You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere Thursday at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. They don't make the um, programs as good as they do over here. It's because they're free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting looking at all the adverts. It's all like cigarettes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all for cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> you might have to find me. <laughs> No, I just I don't want to kind of wreck it. I've been known in the past to completely ruin people's, you know. And this is where do you want it? I promise I won't. EBay and said, yeah, my collection. Squirm light, I'm so scared about doing this thing. You must have signed a few of those. Do people still appear with them on stage? Carrie is still more talked about than anything else I've done. Yeah. Chapter 10. Someday, someone will know my name. Welcome to the final chapter of Out for Blood. I can't believe it. I know, what an adventure. I'm Holly. And I'm Chris. And we have dived deep into Carry the Musical and learnt a lot. What have you learnt? Well, uh, I would say uh, always invest in decent underwear, mm-hmm. never sign a long lease, mm-hmm. and don't try to shoehorn ancient Greek references into stuff. Rules to live by. Yeah. But there are a few more things we need to wrap up. So we're doing a bit of a, what should we call it? post-mortem <laughs> dark but sure <laughs> now i think it's fair to say that the original carry was a flop quite a big one uh, but what other failed musical that ran for three weeks in the late 80s gets its own 10-part podcast seriously if you do have a suggestion please get in touch for season two <laughs> <That'd be desperate. laughs> it made us think what exactly is a flop yeah can anything this well discussed really be considered such a disaster we got in touch with a couple of experts who know a thing or two about flop musicals Hi, I'm Stephen Purdy. I wrote a book called Flop Musicals Since 2000. Stephen has researched and analysed hundreds of musicals considered to be flops, speaking to performers, creatives and audience members to try and nail down exactly what defines a Broadway turkey. And of course, our little show kept coming up again and again. I, I, too, I too found Carrie, find it as a... Um, as a signpost, I think, almost in musical theatre history because it sort of was the beginning of the 
what were they thinking musicals you know where audiences left the theater and they went what were they thinking and how am i supposed to respond to that and i think that it, it ushered in this kind of era of maybe herd mentality um of going to see a show just to see how awful it was um, and I don't know that, that the, I mean, of course, the theaters always had flops. Um, and they've, they've always had people who take some sort of pleasure uh, in, you know, other people's misfortunes. <laughs> but I think Carrie was, the, was a turning point in that. Don't you agree with that? He referenced that original Bible of Broadway flops by Ken Mandelbaum. But I think there's a reason Mandelbaum called it not since Carrie. I think that he's, I think that it's probably the most not the most audacious musical, although it's one of them, but certainly the most audacious flop. In Not Since Carrie, Ken tried to pin down why Carrie had become the definitive Broadway disaster. He said, What makes Carrie so unique in flop musical history is its combination of soaring, often breathtaking sequences and some of the most appalling and ridiculous scenes ever seen in a musical. It alternately scaled the heights and hit rock bottom. He goes on, Carrie also had non-stop energy and, unlike so many flops, was not dull for a second. But there was something ominous about it all, a feeling that it was playing to the lowest common denominator, to people who had never been to the theatre and would respond only to jolts of pop music. We can roughly divide Broadway flops into two camps, artistic disasters and financial failures. And, as we've learnt, holding the record for the most money lost on Broadway at the time Combined with its on and off stage nightmares, Carrie firmly straddles the line between both of these categories. It lost an estimated $8 million, a huge amount by 1980s standards. But if $8 million sounds a lot to mount a show then, it pales in comparison to the budgets needed to get a major new musical up on its feet these days. And when a show costs tens of millions of dollars to make, you need to sell a lot of tickets to keep it going. You know, the pattern that's starting to emerge here in all this research that I've been doing is that a show that costs 34, 35 million dollars has to not just put people in seats, but has to put people in seats consistently for many years before. And, and then, you know, once that starts to dry up, um, the, the show starts to lose money and the, and the producers close it. Big musicals rely on strong word of mouth from the off to succeed. And for that, you need to have someone or something memorable about the show you got to get a gimmick. Carrie tried various things to be memorable. That very expensive, technically complex, briefly spotted, absolutely massive staircase for starters. But what about that other memorable Broadway flop from more recent times? The same thing happened in Spider-Man. There was a gimmick that was supposed to uh, end the show that was really going to be a coup de theatre. I mean, it, was, it had to do with um, a final fight up in the air, and um, they called it the web ring. And it was a million-dollar effect, and they didn't know if it was going to work until they actually tried it. They had to build it. They had to get it up, install it in the theater, and then try it. And there was a proposal that they build a, um, that they build a, uh, a model that, um, which would have cost you know, an, an exorbitant amount of money, too. And they still weren't sure if they were going to find out whether the, the thing worked. Well, it went up at a million-dollar expense, and within... A week or two, it was in the trash bin because, you know, it didn't work. I I mean, these kinds of things just, you know, I mean, think 
Think of the things that we could do. Reminds me of that very expensive giant sparkly ball in the prom scene. Stephen poses the question, is it actually unethical to spend a million dollars on a dodgy special effect? I don't want to get preachy, but think of the things that we could do for the theatre, for in, in cultivating audiences and introducing theatre to, to those who can't afford it uh, or who don't know about it. Uh, think of the things that we could do to lower ticket prices to make it more accessible to people so that that dental assistant from Omaha wouldn't have to spend $250 to see, you know, for the cheap seats on a Broadway show. Think about all those things that we could do to make it more accessible to people if, if we were, you know, if we just were a little bit more considerate about where we filtered those resources. It's, it's, it's a conversation to be had on a much higher, deeper level. In light of what's happening with the world right now and lessons learned from some recent big flops, does Stephen think this big budget model is sustainable in the long run? And so if I had to come down to a, a consensus from all the research, um, talking to some really, really smart people, I think that on some level um, we have gotten to a point where we're, we're building um, a business model. We have built a business model that is, that is really unsustainable um, without an incredible amount of luck and a built-in audience. So, we have the financial Broadway flop. And then there's the flop that I think that was just so bad that you went, oh my god. Those shows that just get completely slated by the critics and hobble off stage as quickly as possible to lick their wounds. We thought we should speak to someone with first-hand experience of another show that covered both territories. All right, I'm ready for blood. A flop means it's like commercially hated and financially not rewarded. And and my show was both of those things, you know. In 2007, New York-based writer Peter Michael Marino created a musical based on the cult 80s movie Desperately Seeking Susan. The film famously starred Madonna, so he created a jukebox musical featuring the songs of... Blondie. Okay. In a rather familiar turn of events, Peter found his show being pulled from all angles by a mixed British-American creative team. Hmm. And as we've learned, Brits and Americans can have very different approaches to musicals. Promised the show would be a success in London's West End, Peter found himself in the centre of a battle of conflicting artistic visions. The producers were the ones in the workshops and in pre, not even previews, but in tech, who would say things like, oh, this feels a little too American. They don't know, they don't know what Port Authority bus terminal is. And I go, well, it's the largest bus terminal in the United States. So, and, and it doesn't matter. We know that the character goes there and she's like, all right, New York, are you ready for me? We know that she's in New York. <laughs> Well, they were, you know, asking me to change things like that and, and going so far as to ask me in previews, I think, to change the Spanish maid to a French maid. But what? Why? Her name's Maria, just so we could sing the song. Um, I mean, I'll admit it. We saw this. Twice. <laughs> and I cannot explain the glee we experienced when that maid appeared and announced that her name was Maria. Uh, I remember multiple scenes set in phone booths because Blondie have more than one hit about giving someone a ring for a chat. <laughs> oh, it was it was terrible. I mean, it was really bad. You know, I'm not I'm not joking. <laughs> 
Despite being a genuinely really fun night out... So much fun. Yeah, the show did not click with the British critics. And, of course, they went to town with the show's title, with one saying they were desperately seeking the excitement between songs and another declaring they spend the evening desperately seeking the exit. You know, I knew the next day, the day after it opened, it was just, you know, it was not going to last very long. But I did pray and I did look at other examples of shows that had gotten bad reviews. Um, I scoured the internet and I spent hours and hours pulling every good thing I could find. Because, you know, this is the other thing. This show was being reviewed by the world. You know, it wasn't like just New York or It was everybody. So there were actually really good things. And there I am, like, copying and pasting all the good reviews. And I made it all into a giant document that looked like a splash page in a newspaper. And I sent it, I sent it to the stage manager and said, can you please put this up backstage so that the company sees that there were people who liked the show? Because, you know, we only, we only hear the bad stuff. Peter has told us that listening to our early episodes about Carrie's chaotic development and untimely closure left him shocked about how closely his experiences on Desperately Seeking Susan were mirrored in the Carrie story. In a major echo of Carrie's fate, his producers also made the quick decision to pull the plug soon after press night, while he was thousands of miles away. Desperately Seeking Susan was hemorrhaging money each time it performed to largely empty houses. I found out about the show closing 3,500 miles away before the producers called to tell me because of all that chat and all those theatre gossip sites. I mean, we were all on the lifeboat together, you know? We were, we were all going down together. Oh, it's totally a flop. But the good thing is it's a cult flop. Desperately Seeking Susan lost about £3.5 million. That's about $4.5 million in its short run in London. But it did go on to have a more successful run in Japan. For Peter, the trauma of his experience led to a creative opportunity. In 2012, drawing on those horrible headlines, he premiered his one-man stand-up show, Desperately Seeking the Exit, which has since played at venues and festivals all around the world to plenty of people eager to find out what it's like to be at the epicentre of a musical flop. In last week's episode, we spoke to Broadway star Alice Ripley about her time in the Seattle production of Carrie. She's also been in a couple of shows which, though well-received by audiences and the press, closed earlier than planned. What's that like? Well, it, it feels like someone pulls the rug out from underneath you, for sure. Um, and also, it's a feeling of where you just really... There is no explanation because... When we closed Sideshow, it was one of those things where, you know, the orchestra was full and then as the weeks, as the days went on, the weeks went by, the, the, it got smaller and smaller until it was just a group of a few hundred people in the middle of the orchestra who came back to see the show. And, you know, but when we closed American Psycho, it, that wasn't the case at all. And if I didn't know any better, I would think that it was always a plan to just be a limited run because every single show, I didn't miss a show. Every show was at 80% capacity, 85, easily. Because I was also looking at the numbers. I mean, one of the great things is that you leave them wanting more, and it's good to leave when you're on top. But I, um, I was really surprised to see a completely full house when we, clo- when we got our notice when we closed. So, we know how a flop can be defined, and we've heard what it's like to be in the eye of the storm. But nobody sets out to create a flop show. What are the factors that cause them to fail? 
back to 1988, a time when Broadway was in the middle of a seismic change. It was moving between the era of enduring classics and safe revivals like Oklahoma and Showboat to the age of enormous new high-tech shows like Cats or Phantom of the Opera, and starting to embrace controversial or challenging topics like in Miss Saigon or even in Into the Woods, for example. The sound of musicals had changed too, and audience members were still working out how to deal with the transition to a rockier, poppier Broadway, with eyes on a more youthful market, a transition that would eventually lead to hits like Rent and Hamilton. Amidst all this change, Carrie was caught in the crossfire. Did the show actually fail because it was ahead of its time? It could be argued that Carrie was a sort of sacrifice in the battle to modernise Broadway. I'm loving all these metaphors. There's something quite, uh, dare I say, Grecian about that last one. <laughs> Should we be wearing togas? Oh, I've got one on under this unitard. Oh, yes, now I see. <laughs> I've got a big night out planned after this. <laughs> Brady Schwind, director of the LA production, believes that in the context of its time, Carrie was simply trying to be the little daring show that could. I mean, it's interesting when you look at the 1988 production and how sort of seemingly absurd it is and was. But when you really think about the context of what was happening in musical theater in 1988, some of it is is less absurd. When you look at, you know, that Les Mis was, Les Mis and Chess and these sort of experimental, big, almost all sung through shows were, were the du jour. And so you can understand why they cut all the dialogue of Carrie and kind of made it a sing, a sing through and, and just the design aesthetics of the 80s were terrible <laughs> whatever musical you would have done and the 80s wasn't exactly renowned for its restrained and tasteful design aesthetic Stephen Purdy thinks that this the weird and wacky theatrical and fashion trends of the era seen through a modern lens adds to our perception that Carrie was wildly over the top that's the other thing about the show there were so many funky things that were going on in the 80s in fashion and in music and, and you know and in visual arts and all these things that that I think that that the the designers weren't necessarily wrong or inept or any of that. It's just that the, there was this kind of an extension of the times, and and you know if you if you look at some of that, the the that scene in the in the gym with headbands and all that, stuff, you know that's right out of a that's right out of Olivia Newton John video. Uh, or a Jay Fonda workout video. And so you look back on it and you go, I mean, well, was it a relic of the times? It was, but was it was it so far off base that it was funny? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it was just uh, I think it was just a sign of the sign of the times on some level. In the early days of Carrie's development, it was assumed that the show would be a huge success. It had everything going for it, a well-known title and a great multi-award winning writing team. Joey McNeely from the 1988 Ensemble. They had the money to back it. They had the uh, pedigree behind the show. You know, you had, it was, you had Hollywood, you had Broadway, you had West End, you had Royal Shakespeare. I mean, all the elements were there, but sometimes it doesn't matter if you don't understand what the show's about. The addition of Terry Hans, a British director with little awareness of the show's setting, and his unlikely partnership with Debbie Allen, a choreographer with a very defined commercial dance style, is often cited as the root of Carrie's problems. But at some point, something broke down. Carrie evolved very organically in the sense that there was, there were workshops, there were readings, there were all these things that are supposed to work all of the, you know, problems out and get the story told better told. Who who was sleeping at that wheel? <laughs> that they didn't catch these things until it was much too late. Now, 
We're not here to place the blame on anyone. Oh, of course not. But plenty of others have tried to. So, in their opinion, who took their eyes off the road? Who's really to blame for Carrie's prime spot in the Broadway Flops Hall of Fame? Here's the list of suspects. Oh my God! (laughs) We've invented a genre. Musical theatre true crime. Stay sexy and don't get your Broadway show (laughs) cancelled. So first in the line of fire for many fans is Friedrich Kurtz, the show's rich but arguably naive producer. The the most successful producers are the ones who are able to um, let the creatives do their work but have enough common sense and and see the the thing from 30,000 feet and know when to say, you know, it's, it's, it's important for creatives to be said, for, for people to tell them yes. It's also important to be told no when, it's, when it just doesn't seem to make sense. This was a man who had spent millions transferring big smash hit musicals from London and Broadway to his native Germany. But with Carrie, it seems he was in above his head. He had little experience of building a show from scratch, especially in the high-pressure world of Broadway, where everything costs substantially more. And as we've been told, when the bad reviews came, he closed the show's bank accounts and left the country, essentially dooming the show to immediate failure. But in terms of the show's content and style, could he have stepped in to save the day? The truth is, he seems to have had no creative gauge of when Carrie went off the rails early in the rehearsal process. He was purely the money guy. I'm so pleased at this point that you haven't resurrected your money guy character from earlier in the series. I'm pitching a podcast about investments. Money guy. Thank you. Of course, all this meant that the director and choreographer making the most of the RSC's generous budget could go wild with nobody to say stop. Which leads us nicely to the next prime suspect, director Terry Hands. I resisted a very strong urge there to do that like a true crime podcast. My favourite murderous musical. <laughs> Lindsay reckons that Terry gets a bad rap in all of this. I used to get quite upset by how hard a time Terry got because I actually think that, you know, yes, it, it wasn't um, it wasn't right. And I don't think that, it, you know, as a director, that wasn't his forte. That wasn't where he was comfortable. Not but I think it wasn't. No, 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 but no, I do right. think that, you know, as a visual, he had a concept in his mind and I think that I commend what he was trying to do and I think that it was a brave choice which wasn't the right timing for it but I think the reason why it's still talked about is because of of its extreme um, creativity. There's no doubt that Terry approached the project with an unrivaled sense of creativity and enthusiasm without his... um, unique mm-hmm. Greek tragedy approach to the material, I don't think we'd still be talking about this show. Yeah, it's true. But he wasn't used to this kind of project. He'd only directed one small-scale, obscure British musical back at the RSC, miles away from the critical pressures of Broadway. Let's not forget, he was a critically praised director with a slew of awards, but the majority of his experience had been directing plays by Shakespeare and other classical writers, whose work cried out for interesting reinterpretation and avant-garde staging. You can do that with Shakespeare. Because the text in itself is so well known, and sometimes it screams for a new sort of uh, abstract interpretation because it doesn't matter because it's all about the words. Uh, With Carrie, we didn't have that. So you had this very bizarre, uh, abstract place, and it didn't fit the storytelling. And again, it's a great lesson on um, how to make a musical is, you know, 
what musicals fail and it's very that's how you learn how to make a musical by doing those that fail because you understand what doesn't work and when your your design is not part of your storytelling it doesn't work it doesn't have to be a lot of set it can be one it just has to be rooted in some sort of core to the story Paul Schwartz, the musical director of Carrie on Broadway, also thinks Terry's radical choice of design, rather than the show itself, was at the root of the musical's issues. Rather than taking responsibility, you know, as he should have himself, because the problems with the problems with the show were uh, not so much in the writing as in the staging. Um, he he never really figured out any of the staging problems beyond, I mean, he created, you know, he created this sort of semi-mythic Grecian, you know, where the girls were all in like little togas in the shower scene and where the, the gym scene, et cetera. Um, but he, he never figured out how he was going to do the, the, the big, the big moments, you know, the, the, the destruction of the gym and the blood and the, all of that. And he just didn't take responsibility for it. I think, I mean, He's a brilliant man, and and uh, but he he didn't he didn't seem to have taken seriously, to my mind, uh, the responsibility for actually figuring that stuff out. On the DVD commentary of the Carrie movie, the screenwriter Larry Cohen mentions the musical and the mismatch in creative staff. He says, "I think directors and their match up with material is a very critical thing." I think part of the success of Carrie as a movie is that Brian De Palma turned out to be an inspired choice of material and director. Going on to talk about the musical, he said, This occasion was far less felicitous in terms of him being very English and not particularly musical. I think Carrie was fundamentally an American piece in the hands of a British director who had no idea what a prom was, or for that matter, what this material was really about. That British-American difference is something we've talked a lot about these last few weeks. But it's one of the key reasons Terry was ultimately a poor choice. As a British man in his late 40s, he had no idea what life for an American teenager was really like. The, the concept of this was such an American piece that really I'm surprised that they didn't just use American people and do it in America to begin with. Yeah. So that, you know, it had its uh, understanding. You know, it, it, you know, it was, we were learning, we were trying to sort of go, oh, okay, so that happens here. Like I say, nowadays, you know, we've all got kids, you know, kids now have proms here, but yeah. we didn't even know that was just a, a very different thing. Dean Pitchford agrees that Terry's lack of awareness of American tropes and traditions meant that he had no choice but to approach the story through his own frame of reference. And that was the classics. American High School, which is the vernacular of our show, American High School does not, did not in 1988 have an equivalent in, in England. And so it the the ways in which we thought of costuming and behavior and setting for those kids in high school um, was not something that Terry or his design team were able to access. From that lack of awareness, Dean reckons, came the vision that was Carrie's legendary downfall. And instead, what he did was he fit it into a, a framework that he understood, which was classical Greek theater. Uh, starting with the fact that the girls in the first scene in what should be gym class in gym shorts and t-shirts and running shoes were wearing togas. And um, we, 
we did a lot of we from the moment the sketches we saw the sketches we did a lot of wait 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 please 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 explain this and we're getting a lot of assurance it's going to be wonderful it's going to be marvelous you'll see you'll see it was a doomed partnership dean thinks there's one fundamental difference between the carry writing team and terry's previous creative collaborators generally they hadn't been able to argue back to be honest we you know uh, we look back on Terry's career in classical theatre at, at RSC. Um, we realised that he had had a very long career working with dead collaborators, and um, we provided a very certain kind of challenge in that the three of us were very much alive, and we we all had opinions. And they were, not only were our opinions strong, uh, you know, and uh, they were formed by all sorts of influences because not, we were not just working in the theater. I was making motion pictures and Michael Gore was getting Academy Awards and nominations for scoring motion pictures, as well as having grown up in New York with theater right outside the door. So there were many, many, many uh, frames of reference that we were bringing to it that were foreign to Terry Hans uh, frames of reference. And we'd look at these sketches of the set and the costumes and the hairstyles and go, what, what, is, what is your frame of reference? As well as his lack of awareness of the setting, Terry was criticized for cutting the spoken scenes down so much that the already complex story became incomprehensible. The early scripts of the show feature many lengthy scenes adapted from the novel or the movie. Remember, Larry Cohen wrote the script for both the film and the show, which help us understand the motivations of the characters and give context to some of the unfolding drama. But, perhaps drawing on popular sung-through shows like Les Mis, by all accounts, Terry insisted on streamlining the script so much that audiences were left confused and perplexed by the plot, especially as some of the more outlandish moments took place. Flammable hands, anyone? (laughs) (laughs) And that script kept being slimmed down even more on Broadway, where audiences had audibly laughed at the mere mention of periods or pigs, both in a bid to protect Lindsay from the mocking and to try and serious up his show. So with songs stacked on top of each other, most of the script gone, and the intense dance sequences and bizarre designs dominating the stage, it's no wonder audiences were quick to dismiss the show as a hot mess. And of course, a vital opportunity had been missed. Very little work was done between Stratford and Broadway to fix the problems that so many people had pointed out, with most of the time spent on making inconsequential tweaks. Again, a lot of things in the research that I hear is is they were fixing what wasn't broken, broken, and and breaking what was fixed, and so they were, you know, because you just, you lose focus. I think you lose sight of of the big picture. You know, I think that I think that the only thing left to change at that point, um, you know, a lot of them will just put their faith in changing some mood, and hope that that works, which of course it never does. Um, you need structural changes. Perhaps, though, if the scenes, songs and dance routines had at least felt part of the same show, it would have been given a fairer chance. Which brings us to the next thing on our countdown of possible contributors to Carrie's failure, the dancing. As we've said, there is no doubt that Debbie Allen is a hugely talented choreographer. Her reputation was, and still is, enormous around the world. It was more, Debbie came from L.A., you know, so her style was very uh, commercial you know, at the time. Uh, and it was like, you know, we were doing like the cabbage patch and we were doing the, the, 
the the hip dances or you know whatever was going on she you know all of a sudden we'd be doing the cabbage patch in the middle of another the prom it was like where does this mean and then all of a sudden we'd whip out chenets and fan kicks and then big big uh, jeté turns the dancing was technically brilliant and inventive and many of the cast have talked about how much they loved doing it it's clear from videos of the show that they truly gave it their all but combined with the outlandish costumes and set against the high drama of terry's book scenes the routines seem completely over the top and at odds with the design language of the show like going to see a serious shakespeare play and having a jane fonda aerobics routine take place every now and then which i'd actually be quite into i've seen you in weirder shows mm. i won't forget that christmas kid show with the rapping jack frost in time <laughs> Soon. Chris, this isn't about me. <laughs> <laughs> in an alternative dimension version of Carrie that met the writer's brief of feeling like fame or grease, the choreography might have fit perfectly well. In fact, there's a video online of a cabaret show in which a dance troupe performs this song in full 80s gym gear rather than the dazzling white togas. And away from all the trappings of the production, it actually works really well. That was staged by lifelong Carrie fan Johnny Jones. One of my favourite aspects of Carrie, especially the 1988 version and the uh, workshop prior, was the choreography. Um, Debbie Allen did an amazing, amazing job. Um, I don't care what anybody says. I think her choreography is absolutely fantastic. The creators are on record um, at saying that they wanted an MTV, very 80s choreography, and they certainly got that. Um I love the choreography so much, actually, that I used in in a dance show that I created about all of uh, 80s, the 80s, right? So it was all different numbers about the 80s, and the Broadway number uh, was in, and I restaged it, used Debbie's original uh, Broadway choreography. I remember that the girls that were in the cast dreaded that number every night because it's so, so, so difficult. Um, but it was very, very rewarding to actually see that number on stage again. Uh, they weren't wearing togas. I costumed them in uh, 80s aerobics attire or school attire. And uh, one girl, uh, I made her, the girl that was playing Chris, I made her a crop top. And uh, I put the Carrie logo on it and wrote Carrie White Memorial High School um, as sort of a little inside joke that nobody else got, but I knew was there. We'll post Johnny's video on our social channels because it's excellent. Yes. So if the choreography works pretty effectively in contemporary styling, why does it feel so out of place in this show? I keep hearing the same phrases over and over in this research and and people keep saying, and that's when it started to crumble. Stephen Purdy thinks there's a point early in the rehearsal process of every flop where it becomes obvious that something isn't working or the creative vision isn't gelling. And if nobody steps in, there's no turning back. There's this kind of snowball effect, I think, that when um, things really start to, you know, you, you run out of ways to tell the story or you don't know the story that you're telling um, or the, the pieces just aren't fitting together. In Carrie, those two pieces are Terry and Debbie, more specifically Terry's decision to divide up the show without a clear way to weld it together. The show just can't pick a lane and it swerves wildly between styles, making it hard to focus on the story and appreciate the thing as a whole. Shelley Hodgson and Charlotte D'Amboise from the cast recall the confusion. But it was the fact that you have got two completely different worlds. And I remember thinking, how do they actually marry these two? I mean, really, which director? Maybe there's some things that could have been tweaked. Maybe, you know, for theatre, you've got you're battling against a film that had all those special effects, boom, 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 immediately. And it's a shame because Betty and and Lindsay's stuff is so beyond really well-written, really brilliant, really 
ahead of its time. And then we come and we're, you know, right after they'd have this scene where you're beating somebody, you know, you're beating your daughter. I mean, so deep, you know what I mean? And then the next scene, you're in a fame scene, like within, within seconds, you, you start to laugh. The audience member doesn't know how to deal with those feelings. You, and then you start laughing at it because it's laughable. And that's what happened through the whole piece. So the choreography is mesmerising and at times really breathtaking. Literally for those dancers. Yeah. But ultimately, it's maybe just not right for this production. But personally, I don't think Debbie can be blamed. She was, after all, just doing her job. She made it like Greece. Exactly. And by all accounts, she was extremely supportive of the young cast when they needed her most, despite working them all extremely hard. And her style being a little intense to some of the British cast, probably the ones who wanted to go down the pub. <laughs> her work just didn't gel with the director's vision. You know, you hear that a lot. You hear you hear that the different departments both had equally compelling things going on. But when, like you said, when they came together, uh, they just didn't mesh. It was oil and water. You know, it wasn't a good match, wasn't a good fit. I don't know whether that, you know, I think that's just a fundamental flaw sometimes in the theater when teams don't, aren't really on the same page. And it does happen. I think it's also fair to talk about some of the songs here. It's such a strange thing because this show contains some of the most compelling and beautiful songs in Broadway history. And yet they're up against others, which are just a bit bizarre. Mm. The fact that two orchestrators were employed to arrange the different types of music already suggests that the musical styles aren't perhaps as cohesive as they should be. From the soaring heights of When There's No One or Evening Prayers or I Remember How Those Boys Could Dance. To the absolute joyful chaos of Out for Blood. It's a simple little gig. You help me kill a pig (laughs) and I've got some plans for the blood. It's just another example of how this show feels like it's coming at you from all angles. There's also the story itself. It's certainly not classic musical theatre material and we've heard about plenty of people who balked at the idea of adapting Carrie for the stage. Could it be that Carrie as a story is just fundamentally unstageable? Joey thinks that could be the case. What's fascinating too is a lot of people in the um, have tried to revive Carrie and they keep thinking they can fix it. And there have been several attempts. I, I just think, you know, conceptually it, it was just a bad idea. <laughs> But Brady rightly points out that some of the most popular Broadway shows are based on ideas that many people would never even think were stage-worthy. I mean, if you look at, the, like, say, the 10 most popular musicals or successful musicals in Broadway history, they are all, on paper, actually horrible ideas. Like, Hamilton on paper is, like, the worst idea you ever heard. And so is Evita and Annie and Cats and Les Mis. Like, how do you how do you find a more dangerous property or something that that has more risk to it? We can deal with singing cats. Speak for yourself, because that film still haunts my nightmares. <laughs> you need to make it stop. <laughs> but maybe the world just wasn't ready for a musical extravaganza about supernatural powers and school prom massacres. History has taught us that things like the supernatural and monsters uh, that you know may be compelling on film. Uh, sometimes don't work on stage because, you know, again, that's that just there's just an uh, there can be an odd fit. We'll be back after this short break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy 
happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There's no doubt Stephen King's horror novels and their movie adaptations are wildly popular. But some things just aren't ready for a full-on tits and teeth musical adaptation. Of course, there are some horror-infused musicals that have turned out to be huge successes. Back in '79, Sweeney Todd had sort of introduced this idea of, um, of you know, gory onstage goings-ons and you know this kind of um, underbelly of sinister, uh, you know, uh, goings-ons, and and I think that with um, with that came also a certain fascination. The difference was. Uh, Sweeney Todd was was fashioned to some large extent um, as melodrama, and you know it's it's that that the element of it is unmissable. I mean, if you if you just look at the the Harold Prince staging of it, which was brilliant, um, like for example, there's a song called "Kiss Me" in that show. Where if you look at the original video, you'll see very specific melodramatic gestures. And and faces and such that that is that moment in time you go ah okay so I understand the staging this. But perhaps Carrie's self-identification and promotion as a horror musical is what led to such audience disappointment and confusion. Really, the show is closer to a teenage pop musical like Grease or Fame, crossed with an opera about intense domestic abuse. Not a classic combo. Perhaps Carrie just couldn't find its footing between serious drama and high camp. That's my career in a nutshell. I think that. That Carrie really wanted to take itself seriously, and wanted to be taken seriously, but but it didn't fall far enough on the side of melodrama, or or it didn't stop short of camp, and and I think that that's where I that's where the the you know again this herd mentality came from. People were just you know going. <gasps> So let's talk about camp. Oh, must we? <laughs> Obviously, I love camp. I mean, that's abundantly clear from whatever this top is that you're wearing today. <laughs> <laughs> Those sequins are interfering with the equipment. How dare you? I got this from Liza Minnelli's whole shopping collection. I thought I recognised it. <laughs> Hi, Georgia. Um, now, a lot of people <laughs> talk about this show being camp, but what does that actually mean? And why would being camp make the show such a flop? If you compare the original Carrie with the 2012 revival, I think you start to see where camp comes in. Because the new version focuses on the psychological horror of Carrie's situation, like the novel. But the 1988 original production brings out, perhaps inadvertently, the deliberately camp vibes of the movie. There's something about Brian De Palma's classic which is undeniably over the top and affected. Susan Sontag famously wrote an essay about camp, saying it's all about artifice and exaggeration. She lists 58 descriptions of what camp is. The 58th and final point says that the ultimate camp statement is 
It's good because it's awful. Which would seem to be a fair description. (laughs) Many would apply to the original production of Carrie the Musical. put that on the poster. In fact, if you don't mind another literary reference, Carrie is what the writer Christopher Isherwood would call high camp, an underlying seriousness applied to fundamentally ridiculous art forms. He used ballet as an example of a high camp art form that people take perfectly seriously. And for the characters of Carrie, their situation, however ridiculous and over the top and however bizarrely costumes, had to be taken perfectly seriously. And that's a problem for directors who want to make a serious piece of theatre out of this story, like Stafford Arima from the Revival production, who had to contend with over 20 years of stories about how camp the original was. It was set out originally to be a, uh, you know, a dramatic piece of musical theatre. And through the years of YouTube and through the years of kind of the changing zeitgeist of, of, of cu- the culture and, and musical theatre performances, and um, it became this kind of camp piece. So we really, we really wanted to make sure that uh, there were... It wasn't that there was no uh, uh, resemblance to the previous production in its guts, meaning its script and its lyrics and its music, but we wanted to be very careful that it didn't cross over into, um, you know, certain dialogue pieces, lines or whatever. In Seattle, director Lewis Hobson faced a similar challenge. How do you get people to take Carrie seriously? I don't think anybody's coming to Carrie expecting a real night of theater unfortunately i mean some people might but like i think the majority of the audience who's out there um you know is expecting to see that there's a schadenfreude there's a there's an expectation that we're going to see see a disaster on stage and it's and and if it's not going to be a disaster well then it better be campy and fun you know what i mean because it, it can't actually be theater because it's, it's Carrie. But I just, I fundamentally disagree with that. I think the writers have written something really interesting here. I think Stephen King's written something that is, uh, that resonates with people today. And not that you have to treat it seriously, but I think that there's something there that you have to explore if you're going to take it on. Otherwise, put it up in a drag bar. In the 2016 London production, Kim Criswell reflected on the importance of truth in her performance to move the story away from camp and towards realism. You know, it was, it was, it was crazy to have symbolic costumes and, you know, it needed to be played for reality, which is, that's how it works. You have to play it for reality. You can't do it. You can't, you can't do it in some kind of stylized, heightened, you know, kitschy way because then it becomes, I don't know, becomes some disco musical. It becomes something else, which is just high camp, but it's not, you know, it's, 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 it, it the story is a better story than that. It deserves, uh, it deserves a truthful telling. I have another theory about why people can't take Carrie seriously. Oh, yes? Periods. I think, uh, I think it's impossible not to talk about Carrie and talk about her getting her period in, you know, in the shower in the first scene of the movie. And drenched in blood later you know representing her getting her period and getting drenched in blood so it's about as female as it gets that's julie cohen from the workshop production alice ripley agrees with her and i think it's interesting if it's made fun of and dismissed the subject matter of carrie (laughs) because you can't do that without making fun of and dismissing women's needs and and pain i think because i think carrie is carrie decides to to show her pain 
And that, you know, you're not supposed to do that in high school because all Carrie is saying is, can I just be myself? You know, can you just call me by my name and just let me be myself? And, and will you, if you, even if you don't like me anymore, Carrie might come across as a little, a little much, but it is a little much. You know, what, what women experience with their moons, let's put it that way. It, and, and, how, and how we have been trained to avoid certain situations or subject matters or words or whatever, I think it's really interesting because all we're talking about is the source of all human life. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It is about women's flow of power, yes, and, and the fact that they're the ones that give birth. And, and it's time for everybody to recognize the power of that. I think Carrie is demanding that. Actually, it's interesting that so far all the major productions of Carrie have been directed by men. The source novel is written by a man and the musical adaptation is written by three males. It's also a time to re-examine the story through different lenses. I mean, uh, like, w- this show is written by uh, gay men and is directed by men usually. Um, and it's about women. And I think that... Um, Maybe the reason it didn't work is because of that. I don't, like initially, maybe maybe um, it requires another point of view or at least another point of view in the room. And not to say that, that those point of views weren't there in the rooms that I were in, that I was in, um, but and not to denigrate anybody, but just to sort of say that like, there's, when you're telling a story about this subject, which is very feminine, it helps to have that voice in the room. What do you think a female-led Carrie would look like? Uh, well, I think all the modern versions have treated the gendered aspect of the story very sensitively. Mm. Um, but a production helmed by women would definitely be really interesting, particularly with regards to how we represent female friendships and antagonisms. Mm-hmm. Also, if women were running it, there would be soft backlighting to enable me to play Carrie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is what Julie thinks. I think there's a feminist, feminine, feminist, and feminine angle to the story of Carrie, and and I think uh, Stephen King really took a very feminine point of view and and took female rage. You don't get a whole lot of representation of female rage, so here it is. There's also female friendship portrayed in in a lot of different ways. I think uh, Sue Snell's care of Carrie and like like open like love for Carrie is one of the most touching things in the in the movie and the and the play you know is her that's female friendship and trust and like support like her turning her back on the mean girls and saying this is a person and we should you know that's a, a strong feminist message you know so we've talked about some of the reasons Carrie may have been unstomachable to the 80s audience and some of the personnel choices which may have led to its undoing. But there's one fundamental question left to answer. Was Carrie really as bad as people say it was? Lindsay Haley. It had its it had so much potential. Uh, you know, to be phenomenal and you had a, you know where I struggled was actually that um you know, pe- people people were quite mocking about yeah. it, but, and yeah. and people and and stories became yeah. so embellished, and you thought, no, that wasn't actually how it was, and and you know, people loved to, yes, it was crazy, and yes, all those things, but but 
fundamentally, the reason why it's still talked about now is because there was a lot of really good stuff that went on and there was a lot of incredibly talented people and it just didn't gel. You know, th there was so much about it with the talent that was on the stage and some of the musical writing that, you know, the potential of it, which is why it won't go away, was yeah. phenomenal. What is that vital quality that has led to us talking about this show instead of the hundreds of other flops in musical theatre history? What is it about Carrie that has made it the marquee name in the circus of flops? Original Broadway musical director Paul Schwartz. Well, I think I think it's several things. I think because it's a show about an event that basically dies in a train wreck, um, that it's kind of it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, and it's easy to laugh at. I think that I think that Carrie just became this kind of the lead car in the train of people who maybe take you know perverse pleasure <laughs> in seeing something this bad, and it's a, you know it's very sad because it's at other people's expense, and people work very hard to bring theater to the world, um, and then when they when they are poo pooed the way that that a, a show like Carrie is, it's it, it's it's a very sad moment. He does have a point. However disastrous the show turned out to be, it was still the product of a lot of hard work by a lot of people. But what are the factors that have led people to get so fascinated and obsessed by Carrie for so long? I don't know what you're talking about. Why are you looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Dolgenoff thinks it became an instant legend because so few people got the chance to experience it for real. It became such an instant cult classic, you know, because so few people were able to get to see it. Once word of mouth started spreading, I think people were really curious because it was known for those really great parts and what people considered really bad parts. And it was, you know, high tech looking and, you know, actors in leather and, you know, and all of that. It just sounded too crazy to be true. And I think it developed just an instant cult. You know, we had, we were six years away from an internet back then. But why this show? because it was both so good and so bad. It starred, you know, Betty Buckley, infamous Broadway diva. It starred, it had a half British and half American cast, which was unusual. You know, there's all the stories about Barbara Cook almost getting decapitated. I think it's because we were spectacularly bad. Because, you know, the one thing you can never do in theater, and the, I think when theater is forgetful is when you're boring. But... We were not boring. We were, yeah, you, I mean, there was so much you could talk about, whether it was Betty or L Lindsay's phenomenal talent or what Betty did with her acting and singing or the, uh, the audacity of the, the choreography or there was just so much people could talk about that it was just, it, it becomes infamous. I think that um, anytime, again, anytime something is so audacious, that it leaves the audience you know, dropping their jaws. People have a natural curiosity about that. And then because of that, then often they'll discover that the show did have some really appealing elements and that, hey, this, is, this was a really good score. Um, it's a really compelling story. So Carrie is the flop musical worth investing your time in. I mean, I can name dozens of musicals I'm, I'm sure you can too that were just so bland that if it'd been a cookie you would have said no this isn't worth the calories uh, but but i think carrie had a uh, some really strong elements notably the score 
And uh, that combines with the folklore and the audacity and blood on stage. In my opinion, Carrie is memorable purely because of how divided everything about it is. Sure, it had some terrible stuff, but it also had incredibly great moments. Notably, the electric performances of Lindsay Haightley and Betty Buckley, which have gone down in history and ultimately defined the show as a Broadway legend. Reviewers, audience members and fellow performers all agree. Charlotte, Joey and Kenny from the cast. No question, Betty Buckley and Lindsay and all their scenes. Their, their performances and their part of the story was, was heartbreaking, breathtaking. To, to have the privilege of seeing Betty and Lindsay working together the way they did, that alone was worth the price of, of an entry ticket for that. I, I think you could have cut us, the, the chorus stuff, and just put them yeah. on and you'd have got your money's worth. Yeah. The fact that we were there shushing it up every now and then was a little, little extra. In particular, I don't think enough praise can be heaped on Lindsay, a 17-year-old girl in her Broadway debut, thrust into the spotlight against two of Broadway's greatest stars and left to deal with what was a potentially life-changing blow. In fact, it was quite emotional to hear some of the cast remind her after all these years exactly how much of a pro she had been. Ensemble member Michelle DeVernay. She is just phenomenal. I don't, I don't think I even spoke to you because I thought you were so out of this world. And I also never knew for a second that you were nervous or you just used to come into the room and felt like you know when someone gets into character and in the zone. That's all I remember you doing, just being in your role. And that's it. That's all. And hearing that massive voice, like, that's all I remember. Something that came up a lot when we interviewed the cast and others involved in the original production was this idea that if Carrie had just stayed open a little bit longer and had time to find its feet, it could have run and run. Um, so I think in, in lots of ways, it, it wasn't until we got to New York, that, which is why it's sad in a sense, that had it not had longer, I think it, it could have become something quite phenomenal. Many even say it could have leaned into the Rawkers audience response and repositioned itself as a sort of Rocky Horror-esque camp night out. I would have tried to keep it open and I, I would have, I would have wanted it to stay open and made it like a cult. And I think it would have run for a long time and, and had its, its run. Um, but, but you had to have advertised it a little differently and approached it a little, a little differently. But of course, it's unlikely this would have happened. Some kind of camp, schlocky Halloween experience isn't the show the writers had ever envisioned. And without the sudden closure, it's likely that audience numbers would have simply dropped to an unsustainable level within a matter of weeks. I would like to present to you my ultimate Carrie theory. <laughs> now he tells me. You've been <laughs> sleeping on a theory. Yeah, I call it the Carrie paradox. The Carrie dogs. If you like. Yeah, go on. We know that the original Carrie was not the show its creators dreamed of. Mm-hmm. And so the show had to be a giant flop to gain its cult status, stay alive in the minds of fans, get revived in 2012, and give the creators the show they'd always wished for. So you're saying it had to be bad to eventually be good? Stick with me. I know it's a bit weird. <laughs> if it had had a mildly successful run of, say, a few months in 1988, it would have been basically forgotten about. And we probably wouldn't be talking about it now. It certainly wouldn't have been on bloody Riverdale. As things went, Carrie had its chance of redemption. And as we've said, the rest is history. This is your PhD, isn't it? I mean, is that an option? <laughs> well, I think it's worth pursuing. <laughs> 
I actually have a second theory about why it survived those wilderness years and developed such an underground cult following. Tell me, tell me now. <laughs> okay. Well, because its biggest advocates, the friends of Carrie, those bootleg chasers and enthusiastic fans who kept Carrie alive, they are all Carrie. Oh my God. We are all Carrie. We are the underdogs. In Carrie, we see ourselves. This is getting awfully deep. Tom, can we add some rousing music or something? <laughs> and that is the emotional integrity that I shall bring to the role of Carrie when the eventual Broadway revival is announced. All roads lead here, I yes, see. Yes, yes, they do. <laughs> well, you're not the only one with that theory. Peter Michael Marino and lyricist Dean Pitchford. That's exactly my theory. I, I feel like all kids got into theatre in elementary school, junior high school, high school, whatever you call it over there, because they didn't fit in anywhere else. And they just found these freaks. And you could just be an idiot or gay or loud or fat or skinny. You could be whatever you wanted around the theater people because we, we all had to all band together because we were freaks. And to me, Carrie, the character, represents all of those people. She's somebody who just knows that she should fit in but doesn't have the gumption to try to fit in, which I think is, applies to a lot of theater people. What we all recognized, um, and we said it on the first day of rehearsal, um, we are all Carrie. I was a white, gay, Polish Catholic boy growing up in Honolulu, going to a school where I was way in the minority. Hawaiians, Samoans, Japanese, Chinese, Filipinos, way outnumbered me. And I, I was pale. I was the pale pink uh, wildflower. Um, and my collaborators had very similar stories and very similar backgrounds. When Stafford saw that, he was a, an Asian growing up in Canada who came to New York to get his theater fix from time to time with his mother. And a gay Asian Canadian. How outside of things can you possibly feel? And so we, Carrie was speaking for us. She was, she was put upon and she, the thing about Carrie that um, it, more than her being able to exact vengeance, I think, what is most attractive about her is that she she wants to rise up she wants to she she says yes to tommy i will go to the prom she um envisions a better life and thinks that she is entitled to a better time than she's having and i think that that so resonates with all of us who have ever been marginalized and maybe that's another reason why this show's legacy endured. All the theatre kids in the hinterland years, listening in the dark, in awe to the recordings, wanting to be as powerful as Margaret or Carrie. It's bound to have made them protective of the show. Here's Carmen Cusack from The Revival. It connects to people on such a level, it, you know, being different. And yet, at the same time, none of us are. We're all so... None of us are alone. We're all so connected. And we just have to embrace that and believe that you know and you grow up and you just think you're so alone and and no one really understands and and yet we all do we're all just we're all so connected we're all just trying to maintain stage and screen's very own annie golden i think it has to do with and i mean this sounds really twisted to assess it this way 
but I think it has to do with the empowerment of the underdog. It has mm. to do with women making a stand and standing up for themselves. You know, I, I really do think that a happy ending inside of, uh, you know, being a downtrodden, uh, overlooked, uh, the plain Jane, whatever the issue is, you know, the little runt, the you know, the runt of the litter, that the runt steps up and however homicidal, you know, has her say, wins. And, of course, we all think this show is ours. When we first found this grainy copy of Carrie, it felt like we were the only people in the world who had made the discovery. It turns out we definitely weren't. But we've spoken to so many fans who discovered Carrie, like us, before the internet or at least very early on through Ken's book or when someone handed them a videotape or a DVD. There's something very analogue about this show. Whoever introduced you to Carrie, you're probably in the same boat as the rest of us. We could hold this precious treasure in our hands and we were desperate to find others to share our discovery with. Okay, we've spoken to a lot of people over the last few weeks. It's been emotional. It has. For them, how does it feel to be part of this legend? I never thought I'd say this, but Carrie the Musical has changed people's lives. But but it's wonderful to be part of something and now that it's... The tide has turned now that it's it's iconic, Carrie. Yeah. You know, it, so to be a part of that, when I got the recording of the workshop, I don't like to listen to myself. It's, uh-huh. it's hard for me. Yeah. But, um, but when I gave a listen, I didn't hate it. That's, <laughs> I, di- I didn't cringe. I, I, I kind of was moved to tears by it. That yeah. it was, look how far I've come. And, and I thought that I wasn't given this opportunity because I wasn't worthy. And listen, you know, it wasn't that. You know, it was validating. It was the one show that when we actually came back and went for auditions, they'd just stop you and go, can you tell me about Carrie? So you'd be about to sing or, or whatever it was. And they went, oh, you did Carrie. Oh, can you tell? Was it true that the pigs bled this and that this happened and that happened? I was so proud. So, so proud. I mean, it could have just disappeared in the annals of time, but it hasn't, and there's a reason for that. And I thought, you need to sort of unpack it and have a think and re-explore it again. And everything we're telling you now is was, as you said, 12 weeks rehearsal. All of it was, was, a, was a, an interesting, tough journey, but at the same time, what a learning curve that was at the same time. It is absolutely the thing that comes up that makes people, you know, just turns their heads and they want to talk about it. Wow, you were you were in Carrie, you were in the original Carrie. It it, it carries a lot of um, it just carries a lot of, of weight in 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 the in the th- especially in the theater community, uh, and it will forever because it was such a phenomenal experience uh, and such a unique experience, uh, and it was it was exhilarating, it was traumatizing, it was. It was, I think that we collectively went through such a range of emotions being involved with that production. It was just, uh, it was, it was invaluable. And I, and, and I, I too feel like uh, it was, it was something that, um, you know, I would certainly cherish for the rest of my life. Whenever I bump into Charlotte with, we, um, we can't help but just instantly go back there. I feel like we're like 25 year olds again and, and we're just laughing and she's doing, um, she used to do impressions of singers in the dressing room. We just, oh, it was just such fun. Lindsay and I have just always remained friends. 
I mean, I would do, I would be in a million shows and I would come back, I would go out and sign autographs and there were tons of people who would carry, carry programs. Or, or we sign, um, you know, I have a, we, my bootleg, I'm a, carry, I'm a carry fan, I'm a carry fan, I'm a carry fan. And I'm proud of a lot of the show and, I'm, and I feel so thrilled that I got to do it. If ever I'm in New York and I meet somebody new on Broadway, even someone really young, you know, and, um, and if we have a few drinks down, so I'll say, oh, um, I was in the original cast of Carrie, you know, and then they go, no, and they'll always know. They'll be 22 years old and they'll know what Carrie is. And they'll be like, oh, you were in Carrie, you know. And what about Lindsay? It took a long time. Yeah, I mean, I was always proud of it, but I, I was almost afraid to ever say that because, you know, there, there was a lot of um, negative press. And for people that hadn't seen it, they were, you know, there's quite a lot of cruel people out there that love to sort of mock. And, uh, and so, I, I, you know, certainly for the first... I'd say the first 10 years of my life, uh, sorry, first 10 years of my career, um, I, I, I tried to not talk about it. It was almost too painful to, rather than actually um, say actually. <laughs> I thought there was a lot of really good things about it and I was proud of the work that I did because it was almost easier just to not. And I, I, I struggled to, to listen to it really because it, it, it had a big effect on me at the time. One thing was consistent across all the people we spoke to. Friendships. Whether it's the exhausting journeys that people go on to stage this show, or maybe just the shared experience of telling the tale of an underdog rising up, Carrie bonds people together. Just like that, VHS cemented our friendship. Oh my God, I'm going to cry. Get me a wine. (laughs) Play the friendship clip montage. Here's Kim Criswell and Jodie Jacobs to kick off from the Southwark Playhouse production. I mean, you don't always bond with the people you're working with, but when you do, you know it's special. And that show was special. It, it, you know, you, you can't predict the alchemy of how these things work out, but the alchemy of that one was we were a very tight-knit bunch and uh, we all had great chemistry. We all believed in the piece and each other. And we, all, we had a blast together. And it, I mean, it was hilarious. I love, for me, the best thing that came out of it was our little trio friendship. We sound like drunks, we are, but don't always take away um, intimate friendships from jobs. You do take away friendships, but I never, as I've got older, I never take that for granted ever. The the the, 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 the lifelong friendship that will still be laughing about the same things in the next ten years when the next pandemic hits, and that that's that feels lovely. And that it came on a show that is historical is lovely. That it wasn't just the third, the fourth cast of a long running musical, which would also have been lovely but that we, we share that is not. Kayla Parker and Emily Lopez from the LA production. Because Emily and I have been living on and off together since we did carry together. We're like sisters. I've like died in Kayla's arms so many times, you know, and it was just so real. I, 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 I don't know. She's like a, a, an actual sister to me. Like I, I'm guessing like anyone who ever did carry, it's like there's nothing like it. Like you'll never do another show like Carrie. Um, I'll never in my life, like I, I just always think I'll never, nothing will ever be as hard <laughs> as Carrie was. Like there's no way that anything, like any role or anything could ever be as hard or as like just the process to be so insane and so um, just like, uh, it's unlike anything I've ever, ever, ever done. It, and I'm sure it's like that for everyone. And what about Dean Pitchford? We know he was pleased with the updated show, but did he ever get closure on the trauma of the original? I, um, my husband and I came over to see Betty when she was in London doing Dear World. 
and um, we had set the whole thing. We set the whole thing up to go see her and have dinner with her afterwards. And then she took us to the Ivy, where they treat her like Dolly Levi returning to the Harmonia Gardens. And we arrived at the Ivy, and her surprise to us was that she invited Lindsay to join us. It was uh, we closed the place. We were there late, 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 late. It was fan- it was just fantastic. And we also heard that even our little podcast had triggered plenty of Carrie nostalgia for the original cast. But you must know, you must know that you uh, sparked a uh, a Carrie Zoom reunion after your podcast. Shelley said we all got together and everyone was talking with this podcast and it made everyone miss everybody else. So we got a whole Zoom thing together and it was lovely because we got to see everybody uh, that we hadn't seen in years and years and years. And we kind of reminisced about uh, our experience with Carrie. Carrie the musical. She's been talked about for over 30 years. She's brought people together. Some people loved her, some people loathed her. And that's exactly why we're here now. And one thing's for sure. There's never been a musical like her. I, I like to think of it now as the most successful flop on Broadway because actually 33 years later and we're here and you know people are still talking about it and it's actually nice that that we can now get to a point where it can be celebrated for you know for what it it was and it was groundbreaking of course it wasn't all right there was loads of things that were wrong with it but I think there were there was a lot of good that was trying to be produced um, at a time when musical theatre was breaking new grounds and so it was about trying different things and being brave and I think that the choices that were made were brave ones they weren't all the right ones but they were brave and I think that's why because it was on such an epic scale um, it, it's lasted the test of time and, and has become such a, a celebrated, um, yeah, a celebrated show. I, I have absolutely no regrets uh, of being part of Carrie, and in fact, now I'm very proud of it. But I, uh, but I do think that it was, um, you know, it's been a journey. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Out for Blood. We've loved taking you on our own journey of discovery through the history and mysteries of Carrie the Musical. Now, we slightly lied to you. (laughs) We're not going away just yet. Surprise. Keep an eye on your podcast feeds as we have some short bonus episodes coming up. Yes, it's been a busy time in the Carrieverse, so we're going to be sitting down, having a glass of something nice and catching up with our favourite cast members, plus some new ones, Mm. and sharing some exclusive recordings and other exciting stories and memories that we received too late to include in the episodes. I better get my prom dress ironed. Yeah. Uh, we've also got a compilation episode featuring unheard interview clips from six of the major carries featured in this podcast. And we'll be sharing some lovely messages from you, the fans. So stay tuned. If you enjoyed Out for Blood, please leave us a lovely review on Apple Podcasts. That will help us reach more and more people in the future. You can also find some great pics and videos on our socials at Out for Blood Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and Out for Blood Pod on Twitter. Just recently, we shared some amazing photos of items from Lindsay very own Carrie memorabilia collection. Out for Blood was hosted and produced by me, Holly Morgan. And me, Chris Adams. It's been a night we'll never forget. <laughs> Sound engineering and editing was by Tom Moores. Paddy Jervis was our audio consultant. 
Original music was by Odin Orn-Hillmarsson and artwork was by Rebecca Pitt. There are links to both Odin and Rebecca's work in our show notes. Go and show them some love. And finally, a huge thanks to all of our contributors on this series, including all the casts from around the world, audience members and experts. There are too many to name, but it really has been an incredible experience to meet you all and hear your stories and memories. And a big thank you to both Mr Paddy Jervis for making us sound so excellent and Mr Tom Moores, who has been with us all the way, recording and editing a podcast involving nearly 70 people in the middle of a global pandemic. It's no mean feat. Fetch them both a prom crown and some hand sanitizer. <laughs> Alpha Blood is a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. A huge thanks from all of us to the team at BPN for hosting us. Head over there for over 100 podcasts covering all your theatrical needs and desires. And if you want to hear more of Holly's voice... That's quite creepy. (laughs) She and Tom host a weekly analysis of the world's biggest divas and their shenanigans on their very own podcast called Big Diva Energy. You can download it in all the usual places. Oh, thank you. I kind of figured there might be some audience crossover. (laughs) Do you think? (laughs) I wonder if we can get a refund on these unitards. Did you keep the tag on? Uh, uh, Bye! Bye. Oh, and Tom... Get in your cellar and edit. <laughs> Brilliant. Lovely. Done. In the can. Boop. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.